1: Each week, they explore the world of
0: writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the
2: world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate how are you al you've got some big news i have had some enormous news this week it was a
0: very enormous week um so i made the official announcement this week that the mapmaker chronicles has been optioned for film which is uh you know huge cheers and excitement i mean it's one of those things that you don't really imagine's ever going to happen
1: yeah it's fantastic it's just mm. i'm beside myself I know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's very,
0: very exciting that somebody, um, in this case, uh, Australian production company, Woe Flamingo, um, believes that they can, you know, make a film out of it. I mean, it's yes. also, it's one of those things too, where you kind of feel like it may never happen. Like it's, it's uh, you have to be realistic and it's very exciting that uh, there's now going to be a screenplay developed and And, uh, you know, uh, Darren and the team at Woe Flamingo are going to try and get investment and things like that. But, um, you know, lots of uh, books are are option that never actually happen. But we just have to cross our fingers. And I'm sure that with the entire So You Want to Be a Writer community crossing their fingers behind us, (laughs) then surely we have a good chance, right?
1: I can totally see it as a film. I've thought that from day one. So this is like beyond exciting.
0: Oh, yeah. It would I'd it's hard to imagine like I it's just so you know you know obviously it plays like a full a full film in my head when yes. I was writing it and all that sort of stuff you sort of see it all happening as it goes along. people kept saying to me they're like, oh wow you know who would you like to see cast in the film yeah. and I um, I find it a very difficult question to answer because of course in my head they're quite complete. Characters and they, and they don't actually look like anybody in particular. So it would be it would be interesting to see. You know, obviously the casting is is not down to me, and it would be something that I would leave to the experts. But it will be interesting to see what the director uh, or and the casting people think these people look like, because I'm sure whatever they look like, it's not the way I think they look.
1: Which yeah. Is, does that
0: make does that make sense?
1: Yeah, for sure. But, um,
0: but my publisher Suzanne O'Sullivan at Ashet, is quite determined that Idris Elba should play Zane. she's Ah. like, oh my God, I've seen it like that right from the start. I'm like, okay, that's good.
1: (laughs) I'm often casting people in my head when I read books, but I'm not as familiar with, you know, younger actors. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, of course I've got, I've had several, it's really cute. I've had several letters from
0: readers and they all offer to be Quinn, should oh. the movie ever get made? Like this was even before it was announced. And, of course, my boys are both like, yeah, so when do we start filming? Oh, so clearly, okay. you know, uh, Mr. Eleven is like, well, so clearly I'm Quinn. I'm oh, like, you know what, babe, you know, by the time the
1: film gets made, you might get to be Quinn's dad, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> He's going, what? <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? We, because film can take years to go into production. Oh, and by forever. that time, like, young people grow up.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I mean, I, I've I've heard talk, you know, that John Flanagan's Rangers Apprentice series, had, you know, was optioned for film. I don't exactly know when, but I, it, it was a long time ago. It was over a decade. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's, it's you know, films are really expensive and the kind of film, the kind of movies that, that the Mapmaker Chronicles would be are among the most expensive <laughs> to actually yes. uh, film because there's a lot of, there's a lot of exteriors and there's mm. a lot of, you know, that Action. sort of stuff and they would... Uh, it's 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 a, actually it's an interesting conversation because our writer in residence this week um and I have quite a long conversation about she' is a screenwriter who is also now a novelist and we talked a lot about that so uh, there's some very good stuff coming up if you're interested in screenwriting and this idea of 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 you know how films are made then um then wait for that because it's very exciting.
1: Fantastic. Well, let's um, let's not get to that too early. No, let's no, no. Start no with... Let's not peak early. Yeah, let's not <laughs> peak early. Let's start with the world of writing and pu- publishing and blogging this week. Let's do that. All right. So, what have you got for me? Valerie? What have we what got? Exciting things have you found? Yes. So, we've got some new additions to dictionary. .com, which has been described as the poor man's Miriam Webster, which is a little mm. bit unfair. I often find dictionary.com quite useful when I just want to quickly look something up on my computer because, you know, it's right there. It's online. There's no login. I still love my Macquarie Dictionary and I have a subscription the, to the online version of the Macquarie Dictionary. But, you know, you do have to log in and stuff like that, whereas dictionary.com is just always there. But what they've done is they've included some new words And, uh, you know, some of them I have heard of, like one I use all the time because we use it in the office all the time, YAS, (laughs) that's Y-A-A-S. Okay. Yes, interesting. I know. Well, we started using it because there's a of course, you know, our, our office is cat obsessed and there's a cat meme on the internet of a cat that just goes "yass" all the time. <laughs> so, mm. we just say "yass" to each other. I know, not you have to be there. But there's some other ones including one I believe that you can't stand. Is that right? Yes.
0: The word "fleek" The yeah, expression like on fleek. the fleek has got to be one of the most Kardashianized, you know, dumbing down of the world that I've ever heard and <laughs> here it is in the dictionary. It means flawlessly styled, groomed and is often used with regards to eyebrows in case anybody really was, you know, missing the point. Um, what, do you say
1: yeah, your I'd... eyebrows are really fleek?
0: No, you say your eyebrows are on fleek. Uh, on fleek. On fleek. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah,
1: you know Your what the kids are saying. Are so
0: on fleek today. Yeah, right. Okay, you like it? Yeah, you see what I'm saying that. here, don't you? You mm-hmm. can see where I'm going with this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I'm looking at these editions and like to me, you know, slang is it, this. It's a it's slang, and that's you know, I, I think that slang does definitely come into wider usage. I would be interested to know how many of these terms people are still using in two years' time, because mm-hmm. that's the thing with slang is that it often, you know, goes in and out of fashion, as we know, um, and to me, most of these words, particularly
1: yes, um, is really, really, that's a word, you no. <laughs> Well, also there's the word "shooty," which is a cross between the word "shoe" and "booty," because it's kind of halfway. It's not quite a booty, it's not quite a shoe, because it's a shoe that extends just, just above the ankle, but is not as high for that you could call it a booty. But apparently, that's a shooty. Do you? But it's actually just
0: a. It's actually just a shoe. (laughs) Like, let's be realistic about this. I I worked at Vogue for too many years. I mean, I get the shooty thing, but like, I'm also looking at that going, mate. It's a shoe do you let's own not get carried shooties? away with ourselves do I wear shooties do you
1: own any no, shooties I do not own a shootie <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have the world's most boring collection of shoes I'm not I'm not a shoe person I'm not one of those people that you know goes into shoegasms and and that sort of thing I just you know for me shoes are just yep let's just I've got about eight pairs and that's it
1: mm, mm, I've got
0: mm. friends however who have got you know, wardrobes, you know, rooms full of them. Yes. I don't don't really get it. I mean, I do understand that, you know, you can buy, they always fit. I get that. And I Mm. understand the appeal of that. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, they're not something that I spend all my money on, that's for sure. No, me What about you? How do you go with those?
1: I did have a shoe phase and then I decided, I realised that I was only wearing 10% of them. Mm. So it's kind of ridiculous. So I Mm. got rid of a whole heap to Vinnie's. So they, yes, they, there's a lot of shoes at uh, Vinnies at the moment. Um, and also one <laughs> called, I don't even know whether to pronounce it Ego or Egot. I don't know. I have no idea. E- I've never
0: heard of it. Clearly I haven't been watching enough 30 Rock. Because yes.
1: I've, uh, yeah, no, I've never heard of it. Yeah, 30 Rock where it was made famous and Egot, E-G-O-T, is the honour of scoring an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar and Tony you know, which some very talented people can do. Mm. But there you go. Some new words for the dictionary. Right, thank you for those, Valerie. Let us move on to a slightly Mm -hmm. disturbing story. Now, this is really strange because yesterday I was on a plane and on the plane you have your Qantas Entertainment System and I'm just flicking around because it was only Melbourne to Sydney. You can't watch a movie. I really wanted to see Mission Impossible 4 or 5 or 6 or 7, whatever we're up to, but I knew I wouldn't get to the end of the movie so I thought, okay, I have to watch a TV show. And Mm -hmm. I chose a rather disturbing TV show called Stalker. And, mm. uh, yeah, it was quite chilling. It was like, having... what,
0: what made you choose that one, Valerie?
1: Oh, uh, because the actors seemed quite good, you know, mm. and I didn't know it was going to be so ridiculously stressful and scary. Not ideal. Okay. Anyway, okay. It's, it's a whole television show about stalkers, and, um, it's a drama. And so I watched this and I went, oh my God, like people are weird, you know, but, you know, this is just Hollywood. It's okay. And then mm. this morning, I open up my, uh, uh, you know, computer to read this story about a British writer who has who tracked down a teenager who gave his book a bad review, and smashed her with a wine bottle. Crazy! Mm-hmm. So a 20- twenty. It's just insane, insane. A 28-year-old mm. British man tracked down a Scottish teenager who'd written a negative review of his self-published novel. And it's quite scary. Because, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But basically, um, you know, she said, as a reader, I'm bored out of my skull and severely disappointed in what I might have paid for as a writer albeit an amateur one, I'm appalled that anyone would think this was worthy of money. You know, possibly a bit unkind. Yeah, harsh. Mm. Not only does it begin with Once Upon a Time, which you could argue is perfect as this is a fairy tale, and it doesn't work, it's incredibly pretentious, but it's filled with many writing no-nos, way too much telling, pretentious prose, and a main character uh, that I already hate. Mm. Ella is the perfect princess, true to fairy tales, so we can at least give him a little credit despite how painfully annoying this is coupled with with a complete lack of real personality shining through. But the scary part is that he was so cranky at this one-star review, he apparently tracked her down through her Facebook page, discovered that she lived in Scotland and worked in a particular supermarket. And he allegedly travelled 500 miles from London, found her at the store, near some cereal boxes and hit her from behind with a full bottle of wine leaving her unconscious and with a gash on her head <gasps> crazy but I, I just yeah I, I mean, you know
0: like unfortunately I I feel we're dealing with someone here who has you know obviously mental health issues and it's an incredibly difficult incredibly sad story like in the sense that Mm. i i mean you know like everybody in the world who is a writer is told right from the start not to read the reviews but if you're going Mm. to read the reviews you really have to um you know manage yourself a little bit better than this (laughs) i i feel incredibly sorry for the girl but you know i mean she says she said as she put it up there that um the guy in question had gained a bit of infamy on Wattpad where he's known for threatening users who don't praise him. And then she yes. put in brackets, pray for me. Yes. And as it turns out, you know, we should all have been praying for it. It's very, very sad. He's, uh, you know, he had a blog called The Benevolent Stalker. Where he sort of, Yeah, where yes. he, um, you know, based it on a woman that, you know, he sort of targeted a creepy courtship thing with, uh, mm. you know, he was obviously stalking a woman you know, when he was writing this blog. That was a while ago, like 2014. But I, I just feel like um, just an incredibly sad story. I, uh, the other thing I would say here is that there's a message in this for all of us. How much stuff do you really need to put on your Facebook page? <laughs> like well, the fact that he was able to find her at the supermarket that she worked at because true. of what was on her Facebook page is something that I think we should all probably be, you know, thinking about.
1: True, true, mm-hmm. well, apparently, since then he's updated that particular blog post that you're referring to, which he says that um you know he 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 the the, the main character of his novel uh, was apparently based on a woman that he he mm-hmm. benevolently stalked, but he has since updated the post and s- acknowledged that it was deluded and creepy and that he's now getting treatment and yeah so this is actually
0: cuz i i remember and i'm not exactly sure when it was but i remember us talking about a, a us writer a few like like many episodes ago where she had also done the same thing she had tracked down someone who had left the one star review for her on goodreads to confront the woman oh as to goodness. why she had done this um and i think you know I, I it does show a it does show a worrying you know yes Yes, trend? Is it a trend? I don't know. Uh, to a trend? I hope
1: not. <laughs> if someone criticizes your work, don't stalk them because chances are that no publisher is going to want to come near you. No, so that's right. Now yeah, really. let's move on to a topic which might be close to your heart, Al, because you've just launched the third book in the Mapmaker series and I thought you might be interested in this. It's on Jane Friedman's blog and it the post is called can you promote a book without making yourself miserable I thought that was really interesting because I certainly know that when I wrote and released my book I had put so much of my blood sweat and tears into the actual writing of the book and it was you know hours with I only had you know, hours of sleep sometimes because I was writing all day and then I finally pushed the book out and I was actually really happy with the edits and then it, it got released and I was like, I have no more energy left because mm. then you actually need to promote and sell the book. What are your thoughts? Can you Look- do, can you promote a book without making yourself miserable? Well, I don't actually
0: look to be perfectly honest, like and I will be absolutely perfectly frank about this, mm. I don't f fi- I don't get miserable about it. I actually like to me it's just an ongoing part of what I'm doing every day anyway. Mm. So, you know, like I, I feel like I've been you know, doing all the things, the blogging and all the stuff for so long that it's just part of what I do. What I find difficult is promoting one book and writing another book at the same time. Like that's difficult mm. as far as I'm concerned, like focusing, managing to find that writing time. But the thing that I I think that authors need to remember is that, when a book goes out like once it's 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 the it's the strangest feeling publication day of any book is the strangest day of your entire life mm-hmm. because in some days it is the biggest day that you have will ever have like it is like you know here I am with my actual book on a shelf I and you know honestly beside yourself which mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. but it's also nothing happens <laughs> unless you make, Unless you make it happen, nothing happens. It's not like they're going to throw a parade out the front of your house because you've got a book on the shelf. So what I find that the sort of, um, I guess, the the online aspect of of marketing, of of building an author platform and all that stuff, what it allows you to do is to do something, Mm. you know, every day that you feel because it's out of your hands to such a huge degree. Sales of your book are out of your hands to such a huge degree like you you can do all the things that you do like the the library talks and the, the blogs and the and, and all the stuff that you do the radio interviews whatever comes your way mm. but you cannot you cannot make people buy your book yeah. like it's just i mean i would love to just walk up to them all shove them into a bookshop and say you totally need this one you know and like you know i think that's how it used to be done in the old days <laughs> but but it you know there's only there's only so much that you that you can't control so all you can control is what you can do and so to me if i can write a blog post or i can do something for someone else or i can tweet or i can whatever at least it allows me to do something so I don't mind that because I'm a bit of a control freak. So I don't – it doesn't make me miserable. It just allows me to feel like at least I've got some small part in it. Um, Having said that, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes. I do understand why people end up tweeting, buy my my book, buy my book, buy my book. Yes. Because, you know, you sort of start to wonder if anyone is actually – is, is anyone in the world actually doing anything useful as far as your book is concerned? Um, so you have to try and just move on from that. That's the difficult part. But I think if you've, got, if you've already got a routine in place where you're doing, you know, you've, you're doing a bit of Facebook or you're doing a bit of tweeting or you're talking to people or whatever. If you've got that stuff already happening, it's just an extension
1: of that. Yes, absolutely. But I think it's interesting how you say you can't make people buy your book, which is definitely true. But it's interesting because something landed in my inbox this morning that I thought um, might be worth mentioning is that some authors are trying to do incentives, are trying to provide incentives to people to buy their books. So, for example, the email that landed in my inbox was from an American author called Lewis House, who's now on the New York Times Best. Seller list, and I've met Lewis a couple of times at you know conferences and things in America. But um, he has uh, reminded everyone of his bonus deals. Now, if you buy one book, his book is called The School of Greatness. If you buy one book, you get um, a a School of Greatness workbook, and you get uh, you know an e book uh, that's supposedly valued at. $12.99 or whatever. But, and if you buy, say, a hundred books, you get access to some of his webinars or online courses and that sort of thing. But if you buy, get this, 10,000 books, (laughs) which will cost you $200,000. Okay. Yeah. You will get. A custom design team weekend retreat in Costa Rica. Flight costs are separate. Oh. <laughs> Optimizing you and your team's health, wellness, and business with Lewis and his entire team. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, no. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a very American nonfiction approach. Should we call that an entrepreneurial approach? Yes.
1: Ten thousand. Um I, I
0: can't imagine like what, what am I gonna what am I gonna offer? So if you buy the Mapmaker Chronicles, you also get a World Globe and you also get a workbook <laughs> and you know, if you buy two hundred thousand of them, you can have a weekend with me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not seeing
1: anyone lining up for that just quietly. Yeah, um, I mean, it can look, work I, for nonfiction, but it certainly doesn't really ho- work for fiction.
0: No, look, I I think like what you have to keep an eye on with your, um, particularly with fiction, is that the you know the thing that sells books is word of mouth, and that's you you can't yeah. ever underestimate the importance of that of that statement. And I think that what you, you what you want to try and do is amplify any word of mouth that you get. Now, what you know, what your you know, sort of author platform, online author platform, or whatever it is that you're doing, what that allows you to do is to is to help to move that along. Is to put yourself in front of as many people as possible, so they remember your name. So if they go to to Amazon or they go to the bookshop, you know, people people like to know what they're looking for these days. You know, it's a very rare person that just browses around anymore. Yep. So, you know, like you want them to go wherever they're going and be like, oh, Alison Tate, the a Chronicles. If I buy 200,000, I could have a weekend with her. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like you want that. So I think that uh, at least um, today authors have more opportunities to actually help that along, whereas – I think I would have gone insane. If you know, if my books had come out even 10 years ago, Ten years, yeah. I would have sat there on I would have sat there on publication day and been like, "Okay." What do we do now? Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I think if because you look at you it can as, be
1: so proactive.
0: Yeah. And if you start being proactive early, then it's it's just an incremental step. It's not a massive jump all yeah. happening around the time that the book comes out. So, you know, that – anyway, I think I've rambled a little there, so we should probably move on.
1: <laughs> all right. I just want to remind everyone that this week's book giveaway is China Rich Girlfriend by Kevin Kwan. And uh, you may remember that we interviewed Kevin some episodes ago. Ago. So if you would like to win a copy of his book, uh, China Rich Girlfriend, just go to writerscentercomau slash win and uh, entries close on the 23rd of November, 2015. But if you are listening to this podcast in the future, then don't worry, there will be another book available uh, to win as well. But let's move on to our writing craft book this week. I bought this book. It's on special. And And what have you got for us? I got it. It's it's 10 bucks from the book grocer. (laughs) Uh, Excellent. Dictionary of English Down the Ages. Words and phrases born out of historical events, great and small. And it's by Linda and Roger Flavelle. Which uh, So it sounds like they are perhaps husband and wife and they have – well, maybe that's an assumption, but possibly it's uh, their husband and wife or brother and sister, I suppose. And they're obviously wordies. and they've written a dictionary of English down the ages. Now, I only just got it, so I'm keen to check it out because I love words. Uh, But it talks about the fact that, you know, a lot of words have been created or invented or somehow formed or evolved because of really specific historical events. Apparently, Columbus's discovery of America introduced to Europe new foodstuffs such as chili and chocolate. And the words that describe them, the Normans gave us the feudal system and curfews, while the flourishing of Dutch art in the seventeenth century introduced us to easels, etchings, and landscapes. So yeah, very keen to delve into it and just mm-hmm. read my little, you know, read all about my little words. There you go. That's my book. Excited? Do you think
0: the Kardashians will be in there with on fleek. <laughs>
1: Somehow, I don't think so. It's uh, you know. Did you know that the word hat trick is because in the second half of the nineteenth century, a bowler who succeeded in taking three wickets with three consecutive balls could expect a reward, usually a new hat, and that's how it became a hat trick. Oh, now you can all sleep. Now you can I really all like sleep. That. Yes. So let's move on. <laughs> I know geeky I know calm down Alison so I such, need to get so excited uh, about my words such a word geek
0: I, I know I'm not coping at all all right well just moving on from that and talking of geekery I believe you've been somewhere interesting over the weekend I think you went to the we are podcast conference is this correct
1: Yes, that is correct. Apparently, it's the first podcasting summit in the Southern Hemisphere, so it was nice to go to something that was quite fresh and new. And basically, it was a conference about podcasting. And I think that's really interesting because remember the days, the very early days of ProBlogger when everyone was blogging for the first time and everyone wanted to connect with other bloggers. So... Trevor young who was one of the speakers made the comment that the vibe was very much similar to the vibe of the very first blogging conferences where everyone was really keen everyone was really fresh and they were learning about this new thing and it was great to be able to hang out with other podcasters and learn from what they do that works and what doesn't and um, really just to hang out with people who were interested in podcasting what was interesting was that there were a lot of people there who had not who were who loved Podcasts, but they had never created a podcast yet. But what was even more fascinating to me was the number of delegates who went who had never listened to a podcast, and I thought that was a little bit hey. unusual. Do you think that's unusual?
0: I, I find it. All right. Unusual is a good word. Let's say that. It is unusual. It doesn't surprise me in some ways because I often talk to people who want to write for magazines, who mm. don't actually read magazines. Oh. And I also am constantly fascinated by the number of Australian, you know, aspiring authors that I meet who don't actually buy books by Australian authors. Oh, yes. um, and I, I, you know, one of my big things is always like, I try very, very hard, you know, through my book club, through the podcast, through various things that we do. And I know that you do as well to, to really kind of support the Australian industry. Like in the sense of, I, I, you know, I I really believe that if you are generous in spirit to other people and support the industry, then that is, it can only help you along in the, Mm. you know, in so many ways, because if you don't support the industry, there is no industry. And I feel that, um, that that's something that maybe some people need to think about because, you know, if you really want to be a published Australian author, you have to buy Australian books because otherwise there will be no industry for you to be published yeah, in. So for sure. um, I feel maybe the same thing with the podcasting. It, it's important that you – and it's so important that you l- have a look at what other people are doing. Like you can't mm. really exist in a vacuum or a mm. bubble. Um I think it's, yeah, I think it's important to, to see what other people are up to yeah, personally.
1: That's, and that's a, that's a great point because it's not just a matter of supporting in the industry, which I also agree with you on, uh, but it's a matter of just being aware of what other people are up to. These, I took a class once. There were 10 mm-hmm. people in the class and they it was a class in magazine writing, <laughs> so how to write for magazines. And I said, after, about halfway through the course, I went, okay, can I just get a show of hands? Who actually reads magazines? Two people out of 10 put their hand up and I said the other eight of you does that mean you don't read magazines and they all said yes and I said well that's insane that you actually want to write for magazines and I'm not reading magazines you have to read magazines if you want to write for them it's as simple as that but yes it's it's crazy mm. but anyway let's move on from mm. podcasting to who is our writer in let's residence who is our writer in residence
0: Ah, well this well, it's very exciting so this week I'm actually speaking uh Uh, interviewed Shirley Barrett. Now, Shirley Mm -hmm. is a filmmaker and she has uh, made films such as Love, Serenade, uh, which was award-winning. It was her first ever film. Walk the Talk and South Solitary. And she also is a director. She has directed um, and screenwriter. So she has directed... Um, for TV, Offspring, many, many episodes of Offspring for all those people out there who love Offspring and Love My Way, which was one of my favourite TV series of all time, um, as well as TV commercials. So she's very, very busy doing all of those things. Mm. And in the meantime, she's also written a novel, which is called Rush O, uh, which is about the whaling um, industry on the far south coast of New South Wales in the early 1900s. Yeah. And it's been very well received. It's, um, and the Pink Firebury Book Club actually read this book mm. uh, for our October selection, and it was, um, it was a big favourite. There was a lot of, you know, people who really enjoyed uh, how engaged it was. It's historic. She's done a brilliant job with the research and not allowing it to swamp the story. And um, anyway, so I had a very, very fun and interesting chat with Shirley about all the various things that she does. And I think that um, whether you're interested in screenwriting or writing a novel or just, you know, listening to interesting people talk about their passions, um, this is a terrific interview. Shirley Barrett is an Australian filmmaker. She has written and directed three feature films, Love Serenade, Walk the Talk and South Solitary, and worked extensively as a director in television. Love My Way, Offspring, which is a big favourite with all of you I know, Wild Boys, and some television commercials. Shirley's first novel, Rush O, was released in September 2015 by Picador Pan Macmillan in Australia, and will be out in January 2016 in the US and the UK. So welcome to the program, Shirley. Thank
2: you, Alison. It's delightful to be here. (laughs)
0: All right. So firstly, um, tell us a little bit about Rush O, and what compelled you to write this particular story.
2: Okay well years ago I came across the story of the killer whales of Eden and uh, for those who who don't know that story it's um, back in the um, 1850s onwards to the early 1900s a pod of killer whales would regularly turn up around July of each year and assist the local whalers in uh, the chase and capture of a capture is the euphemism they they had at the time for killing uh, whales, um, and and the same pot of killer whales kept pretty much regularly returning, and the whalers came to know them by name, identifying them by their dorsal fins, and a the, the very affectionate relationship developed between um, the whalers and the killer whales, and that I think is what appealed to me. First of all, the oddness of the, of, of the story in that it's co-op, you know two species cooperating. Like that, and and also it, that it, in a way it, it seems a, an animal story, and you know I've got a soft spot for animal stories, <laughs> and it it seemed it it just captured my imagination. So, so that was the backdrop, I suppose, although it's a bit more than a backdrop to, to the story I went on to create, which is about uh, the family of whalers, the Davidsons, and they're based on real a real family, uh, well at least a real whaler, George Davidson, who was the master whaler. In around the 1900s and um and they're at the documenting of a particular whaling season the whaling season of 1908 told in the first person by young mary davidson who's the 19 year old eldest daughter of george and there's a bit of romance there's a lot of action uh, and there's a you know it's a bit of a family family saga too there's there's various brothers and sisters who go through through various things
0: well, the Pink Fibro Book Club read uh, Russo as our October book, and it was very widely embraced. People absolutely loved oh, it despite oh, despite the grisly <laughs> nature mm. of some of the um, yeah. some of the descriptions which I found quite interesting and i I went to a library talk at my local library that you um, that you did, and I know that you mm. were talking about that because um, you know that some of the i mean we 're talking out of about a fairly difficult Time to write about now because of you know our associate our relationship with Wales is somewhat different to what it was in 1908. Mm. Did you find you? I mean, obviously, you did an enormous amount of research, but did you find those scenes you know particularly difficult to write? Or, um, I mean, I remember that you said in the talk that because of Mary's distance from the actual chases, that you were able to. Perhaps put that small amount of distance yourself into the description of the
2: chases. Is that how you went about it? Well, yes. Look, look. That really, that was helpful to me. That I was able to write most of those whale chases from the point of view of someone who'd never actually seen seen <laughs> one, and was just kind of hope, hoping that she had all the details straight. She she'd heard what the, what the um, conceit, I suppose, is that Mary has heard her father and her. Um, her siblings and the whalers talking about a whale chase, and then she's she's written it down in a kind of excited fashion uh, as as someone who's just heard it. Later on in the book, she does get to see her own first whale chase. Mm. I I based um, and she's fairly shocked by it. Mm. Uh, I based um, the whale chases in the book on accounts of the whale chases that I'd come across in the Eden newspapers of that period. And they were very uh compellingly written, quite unflinching, as they described every kind of maneuver that the poor whale took as it was trying to kind of dodge its, the onslaught of killer whales and whalers and they're they're kind of very harrowing to read and uh but quite gripping as well mm. and and the, you know they were i felt i suppose if i 'm going to write a book about this, then i can 't just gloss over it and pretend it. It wasn't as horrible as it was, mm. and so I, I suppose I I spun it the story as 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 a Mary kind of almost romanticising it for most of the book until finally she's confronted by the reality herself and and is and is kind of shocked by it as as is her sister. Mm. I remember actually reading or hearing on the ABC there's a wonderful oral history, a, doc, a documentary series called The Hindsight, and they had done a special on, on the killer whales of Eden, and they had some um, interview with one of the daughters, I think, of George Davidson, and she told a story about how she, you know, her father had kept them all away as children, away from the, from the horrors of whaling, but she had been traveling across the bay one day in a boat, and they came across a whale chase, and that she... Was just so horrified by what she saw. You know, she describes how beautiful the tail, the whale's tail was. You know, as it rose up out of the water in the morning sun, and then this terrible, terrible sound rising up out of the water, also of the poor whale being, you know, mm-hmm. basically hounded to death by by this pack of killer whales. You know, and so it was. It was. You know, I think from that point on, she was horrified. So I kind of used that a little bit in the yeah. in the book as well. I have to say, um, you know, as as I think I mentioned to you, Alison, my my own mother was um, pretty horrified when she read read the whale chases and she said, I had to put the book down for two days. And that surprised me. I think I've I've been so much in that world that I had perhaps underestimated how harrowing those whale chases can be to read, Mm. not not to everyone, but to many people. And, you know, but I I, I also think had I known that I would still probably proceed it as I did because if you're going to choose a subject matter then you then you have to um have to paint the picture, you know, wholly and not just gloss over it, I think.
0: Which I have to say, I think you did brilliantly. I think the world that you've created mm-hmm. in that novel is so, you know, so intense. You really feel like you're there as far as it goes. Oh, and right. I know that you did an enormous amount of research to get that sort of voice mm. right and the details right. And yeah. So my question has to be, because I know that this is something that many writers, particularly those who 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 use, you know, historical detail, um, struggle with is this business of how do you know when to stop researching? Like you could research mm. forever, couldn't you? So how you do you think could. I'm? I'm there. I've got enough. I, I can get started.
2: Um, it's a that's a really good question, and and uh, I know it's a really difficult thing because also research is fun too. You know, mm. it it's, it makes you feel like you're working, but without actually. Extra- actually do the hard yards. So it's a very nice state to be in, you know, when when the story is still full of possibilities and you haven't actually begun to put it down yet. Um, I I have a friend at the moment who's in the midst of doing a massive amount of research on a a subject for a book he's writing, and I can see he's in exactly this predicament where he's sort of very reluctant to step off. Mm. And just, you know, and there's also the story... You know, has got many, many more. You know, it's a story you could research endlessly, but um, and I'm trying to kind of get him to start writing even just little bits and pieces of it just to get going. Mm. I think you have to, um, I you know, I, I unfortunately it's so long ago I can't quite remember what at what point I decided I had enough to to get going, mm. but I I know I would spent a, a good amount of time in the state library. of New South Wales here in Sydney, and I spent a lot of time poring over those newspapers. But I was also, it was also such exciting material that I I remember feeling kind of eager to get going. And and in fact, I when I when I wrote the novel and just before I was, it sort of went properly to publishers. I went back to the library and went back through the newspapers. Really, just trying to make sure I hadn't missed anything fabulous. You know, I yeah. hate to be in that position where, where I'd missed something that would have just been fantastic <laughs> to put in the book. So I kind of went back and double-checked a lot of those newspapers just to make sure I hadn't hadn't missed anything. And, and in fact, I did come across little bits and pieces that I I had to put in the book. So okay. So yes, it's a it's a hard thing, but I I just encourage your listeners to um to even if they feel like they could keep going at some point you've just got to jump off and begin let go, let right. go Yeah. so Russia won't go
0: back <laughs> that's the thing but then the trouble becomes that you go back and back and back and you never actually send it anywhere but so we won't go there all right so um Russo actually began life as a screenplay and then became yeah. a novel so can you mm. tell us a little bit about why that happened and
2: what made you decide to write the novel Sure. I, I mean, I've always been, well, you know, my career has been as a screenwriter and a director and uh, I've written, you know, the three feature films that I've made have been my own scripts. And so it just was the way I what, wrote. It had never occurred to me to write a novel. A novel seemed much harder and a completely different process. So, mm. So, and I, you know, I'd had some degree of success with my first film and so I just thought I'd continue on in this fashion writing a screenplay and, you know, making, getting them made and, you know, so forth. But, winning awards um, and being fabulous. That's yeah. <laughs> right, winning <laughs> awards. And in fact like that didn't continue to happen. You know, some fil- scripts didn't get made. You know, some films disappeared without trace. You know, it's it's like a hard slog in that world. Mm. But anyway, I was, after Love Serenade, which was the first film that I made, I I thought, what can I do next? And, and the killer whale story, as I said, really captured my imagination. So I went off and did all the research and wrote it as a screenplay. And... comparing the screenplay to the novel, it's a much, it's, it's very similar, you know, the characters are the same. Uh, It's told, you know, through Mary's eyes, and there's all her brothers and sisters and her father and John Beck and all the whalers. And it has, you know, it's the same setting, it's 1908, and it finishes with the, with the plain and fancy dress ball, which is more or less where, where my novel finishes too. And, but and you know there are there are scenes that are definitely in the book that were in the screenplay but it's much simpler it's a much simpler story it's uh it's because it's so the novel has has much more to it because i i am able to you know go back and forth in time and, and mm. deviate into little details which i could never be able to get away with in a screenplay which are generally much more rigidly structured you know it's a it's a it's a trickier thing, people can do it, but it's trickier to, to sort of take those leaps in time mm. and also to get inside your character's head. So, so look, I wrote it as a screenplay and I spent, uh, you know, a lot of time trying to get it made and finally had to give up on it, mainly because it's just too expensive, you know, all those whale chases mm. are, um, you know, that's all CG, computer-generated um, effects, and a very, very expensive, costly thing to, to do. And, you know, it was never... With whale chases are very difficult things to watch, as mm. they are to read, and you know I don't. It, it would, I think, be a rather uncomfortable film—a <laughs> kind of romantic comedy set against the backdrop <laughs> of whale slaughter. You know, it's just—it's uncomfortable. And so I, I began to realize it was just never going to happen. And so, but I loved the world so much, and that I finally thought I'd have to give it a shot and write it as a novel. And it took me. A long time, I, I stopped and started a great deal. I sort of just went back to it in between other jobs because I work in TV as a freelancer. So you work for a few months and then have a, a couple of months off, and I sort of go back to it then. But always feeling kind of guilty about it, like it was a bit of a, a vanity project that I should wait, you know, till I retire to attempt. Because in the meantime, I should be writing films, you know. Mm. But but I began to also realize once I got the hang of it that it was more fun you know it was a lot more fun to write in this f- way much more free free freeing and 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 playful and liberating than writing a, a screenplay and so i i i just embraced it really and and to be honest now i i you know i'm not sure i would ever go back and write another feature film script because oh. i'd much prefer to I, this new this new medium of, of new for me of writing as writing novels. Oh
0: that's really interesting. Like that's a mm. that's a quite a big call. <laughs>
2: mm. So do you it's also, you know, you write your screenplay and that's it, it that doesn't amount to anything till you get it made. You know, yeah. it's just it's just immaterial what how good a screenplay it is. It has to be made. And it's it's hard to get a film script film made these mm. days. You know, they cost millions and millions of dollars. Um you know, we don't make that many films here in Australia because there's limited budgets, you know, yep. limited amount of money to do so. And um, it, it, it's just hard, whereas if, when you write a novel, you know, it's finished, that's it. You know, it can go directly to the reader and, and uh, there's nothing more needs to be done.
0: So do you like that aspect of because screen writing is a very collaborative thing, isn't it? By the time sort of everybody's had their, their bit, your movie... Is very much a team effort, isn't it? Whereas a novel, while there is definitely a team involved in your publishers, you know, your editors and things like that, you have a lot more control over what the final product is like. Is that correct? Well,
2: yes and no. In with my screen with my feature films, I have I, I was oh you make it really fortunate yeah. Yeah. in that you are actually did, um, yes, the team. <laughs> yeah, I do have full creative control over them, and so so, uh, which is you know one of the great privileges of being able to make a, a film in this country. You know, there's no one. Telling you not to do what you don't want to do, and so um, and so, I always have had that lovely creative control. But yes, it's a collaborative thing. Once everyone else comes aboard—your actors, your you know, your camera, your your DOP, your your, your designer, your costume designer, and so forth—and it's wonderful. You know, it's exhilarating and wonderful collaboration. All of that, and, and that I must say, I would miss if I didn't make another film in television. Um, where I also work uh, as a director and a writer, uh, it is more collab- it is more a team effort. You know, there's a lot of people who work together to plot the stories, and um, and so it it it's and you know you you're you don't know, as a writer you don't have complete creative control. The director and you know will often move it into another area, and so um, so so yes, it's. It is, but but you're right in saying it is that the full creative control of writing a novel that's one of the great joys, knowing mm. that it it goes out there untrammelled, you know that the reader will read it as i as I wrote it, you know how many drafts of your novel do
0: you do you think you did, like in the sense that with your screenplay, you probably had mm. you know essentially a very solid outline of what you were what was in your mind, so yep. did you? Did you kind of follow that as a plan, or did you? I did. You yes, did. I yeah. did.
2: I did. I started off um, pretty much with the screenplay as, as my blueprint, and and moved on from there. So, in terms of drafts, it probably had about three drafts. Ultimately, mm. its first draft is after the screenplay is what went out to the publishers. Okay. Um, well, it's probably more a polished. First draft, and yeah, maybe yeah. you could even call it a second draft. Okay. Went out to the publishers, but it, but it was, and then it had another full draft after, uh, after that before yeah. you know, it was published. And so, so it, it, yes, I think I'd done a lot had been worked out in the screenplay, and so it was it was this reasonably straightforward process, I yep. guess. Um, although there's still, as I say, a lot more. There's a lot more to the novel than there was in the screenplay. Yeah.
0: So here's a question if you were now yeah. approached to create the screenplay for Rusho
2: would you go back but, to
0: that version that you'd written or would you would it change
2: uh, Yeah I'd start again I'd start, you'd start again, again because I think it's simpler yeah, and and simpler than than the novel and and there's more detail in the novel that I'd try and capture somehow I'm not sure how you'd do it um you know because the novel's told from Mary's point of view 30 years in advance and that's never Completely successful process in a film, I think. Oh um, yeah, the future. You know, it's always some actor in bad age makeup. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one ever buys. I'll make it so but, attractive. Um, yes. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I would start again. I think I would start again. I think um, the novels, you know, changed the story a little bit. You know, it, it's it feels more complicated, more complex, I should say now.
0: So then you would be in the position of having to adapt a novel to screen, which is mm. a different process again, isn't it, as far yeah. as... Yeah, how would you go about that? Like, where would you start? I, mm, By
2: that's simplifying I That's I mean, I think I've probably just... I think there's a... I'd probably try to tell a story just from 1908 and not bother with flash forwards and flashbacks. So, okay. So I'd have to do that. But then it would have a sort of perhaps a slightly bittersweet ending and i have to find some way to to get that I might I, I imagine I'd be very tempted to make it a slightly more happier ending romantically than uh. than the one I gave <laughs> 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 I can imagine I'd be very tempted to do that and in um, fact the, the original screenplay did have a happy ending um, happier ending romantically than, than the novel did but see then all your audiences would go and they go
0: oh they changed the ending I they know. always do that <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, all right, so you have, you know, you've had a pretty amazing career in film and television with the writing and directing. How did you actually get into that in the first place? What was your process there? Um,
2: well, I, I uh, stuffing around, dropped out of university, you know, in my early 20s and um, and my older sister actually suggested I try the film school, the Australian Film and Television oh, School, and see if I could, you know, that. I was really floundering and I hadn't really ever imagined myself as, you know, as a filmmaker, but anyway, <laughs> but at that point, the the Australian film and TV school used to sort of, you used to be able to sort of submit scripts and, and, and you could get in in the writing departments, you know, they had different disciplines. And, and so I, I had a bash at writing scripts and after I, I look, it took me three years to get in um, and I finally got in and that, that, and then, at that point, it was quite a long course. It was a three-year course. And at, at the end of that three years, you got to make a short film. And I loved film school. You know, I I liked, um, you know, I made a lot of very dear friends there. And we had a lot of fun there working on each other's films. And um, it was a very playful and creative time. And I'm very grateful to that period, for because I think by the end of that three years, I had found my voice as a, as a filmmaker and, and what, what it was that I could do. And and I sort of feel sorry for the film students now at the film school, although I think it's changed again now, but, you know, they often can only get in and do a year course. And in a way, I don't think that's enough. I think you need more time to be able to play, you know, to be able to experiment and, mm-hmm. and you know, form those collaborations that in the end sort of shape you. So I... Um, that short film I made while I was at film school won some awards, and so I and I got offered a, some TV directing, and I really liked that. I, I felt because I had gone in as a scriptwriter, I didn't know much about directing, and so I learned a lot about directing, working in television, and I still work in television a lot, and I really enjoy working in television. I like the speed at which you have to work, and the you know the on the spot problem solving and the and the sort of camaraderie of the film set. I, I really love all that. I really enjoy it. Um, so I i just, but while I was directing TV, I, I would, kept thinking oh, I should write my own film script. And I wrote the script for Love Serenade and was lucky enough to have Jan Chapman, who'd seen my short film, uh, read the script and she she decided to take it on as producer and she just made the piano there.
1: So wow. I couldn't
2: I couldn't have been <laughs> <more> fortunate in <laughs> wow. my timing. So you know they weren't going to knock Jan back. Yeah. And so, you know, I I just sort of had a bit of a dream run really. Mm. I feel you know really lucky to have had that. You yeah. know, it wasn't so easy afterwards, you know, because it's it it is hard to to make a hit movie. Yeah. And I've never really fully succeeded as as others have. But again, I also feel um, sort of privileged to have had the opportunity to make films that are very idiosyncratically my my own films, I suppose.
0: So, if if you were a kind of a would be screenwriter starting out now, what mm. what advice would you what, would, what advice would you offer a would be screenwriter? Mm,
2: a would be screenwriter?
0: Yeah, someone um,
2: starting out. I, look, it's tricky, and I, I know you know. I've I've worked at the film school, and I do occasionally mentor. Screenwriters and directors, and I, it's. I think um, you just have to try and write the most compellingly original script that no one can. No one can knock it back. You know, yeah. you have to. Um, it's. It's just got to be strong enough that when you go to Screen Australia or whatever they're called now, and ask for money, they think, "Oh no, we really should make this film." In lots of ways, I think it's easier when you're a first timer because you're an unknown quantity and they think, oh, this could be the next big thing. Right. And so I think, you know, you're on a good wicket here. We, you know, as a culture, I think we do encourage first timers and, and, you know, in some ways it gets harder the more, more work you've done because you're a known commodity. So, so I think, yeah, you've just got to write something fabulous and, and original, I think, you know, because there's enough, um, you know, imitation out there. Yeah. And, Derivative stuff, and and it's uh, and I, but I think everyone recognises when something is original and, and and strong and good, and they, or, you know, there's a lot of people that would really be keen to get something made in that case.
0: All right, so now that you are a novelist and a screenwriter, yes. do you find the business of being a novelist different? Like, in the sense of, do you have to promote yourself more? Are you needing to connect with people more, or
2: how how does it, you know, how does it work yeah. for you? It's a good question. It's, a, it's a, the, the, the obvious difference is in the necessity, as a novelist, of um, of befriending, for want of a better word, the bookseller. You know, making that connection with the <laughs> yeah. bookseller, yeah. because in filmmaking that just doesn't happen. You make your film. You just assume that the cinema owners. Will screen it, and they, you know, and you have no power over whether they, you know, what screenings they give it, you know, how many mm. screening sessions and all that. You just have no, no matter how much you schmooze cinema owners, that's never gonna, that's never gonna happen. You know that you'll have any <laughs> control over how, how many times they screen your film in a weekend, for yep. example, yeah, and how quick, you know, how quickly it goes back to those terrible screening times of four PM in the afternoon. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, no one, yeah. no one can ever see them. Um so which is hard, you know, as a filmmaker. But in so that was that's been the most striking thing that as a novelist, you know, my my publishers have really made sure that I've been out there and met met the booksellers, met gone out to the bookshops and mm-hmm. talked to the booksellers. And um because it's this process which I hadn't heard of before called hand selling. Yes. Where they really rely upon the bookshop owner to to read your book and and to recommend it to people who walk into the shop and that's really very different as i just said to 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 making a film so and as a process i've really enjoyed it because um and i can really see the need for it i've i've you know, there's been a couple of bookshops that have just gone above and beyond the call of duty, I think, for Russia, particularly down on the south coast, mm. and, you know, where they've just sort of really embraced the book and, and really kind of put it forward. And I'm, you know, really grateful to to book owners for that and, and you know, other bookshops owners too, because uh, it's, you know, you really, it makes a difference, I think, if they do like your book and they, they're they able to recommend it to to people wandering into the shop and wondering what they're going to read. The browser. We love the browser. The browser.
0: <laughs> so what about the idea of an author platform? Did your publisher talk to you at all about, you know, doing social media or any of that sort of stuff? Did you, have you been
2: encouraged to engage? Um. Well, look, there was a bit of talk about that at the beginning and I just said I just don't do that and okay. they've never mentioned it again. Oh. So, <laughs> Lucky um, you. <laughs> so I was expecting a bit more of a fight over it but it just never got mentioned again. Fantastic. And um, so that was good because i was a bit uncomfortable with that and I mean I can see why it's useful of course and I'm sure they'd rather I did it. But I just, I have... I've just uncomfortable with social media. I've never done it. Okay. I'm a bit old school and so made for better or worse. Um, that's just the way it is. And my publishers are so kind of lovely that they've never pushed it, but perhaps they're secretly gnashing their teeth about the whole thing. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what happens
0: when the next book comes out, shall we? <laughs> yeah,
2: that's right. All
0: right. So speaking of next book, um, you know, your next project will be a book by the sounds of things? You're... Moving away well, from screenplay?
2: Yes, I, I am. Uh, look, I'm, my next project, I'm actually writing a new script for Offspring at the moment. So Ooh. I'm still working very much in TV. So I'm exciting. not saying nothing, Shh. not giving anything oh, away. come on. <laughs> on to um, but, uh, and then I'm also a director. So I'm going on to do, direct um, a place called Home next year, which I'm doing a bit of. So oh. so I'm still working very much in television. But um, I'm also, I, you know, I'm really keen to keep writing novels. And, And, you know, I I might have mentioned this to you when we talked the other day, Alison, but I have a, you know, drawer full of unrealised screenplays. Yes. I did mention the drawer. Can can possibly (laughs) be converted into a novel. I'm a little bit jealous of your (laughs) drawer, it has to be said. (laughs) Yes. So, at the moment, I'm the process of adapting a script I'd written, which is a horror film, into a novel. Oh. And... It's been quite fun up to this and so now I'm beginning to have doubts about it which of course as we all know is part of the process mm. anyway but um, it's it's working well as a novel but unfortunately the problems that I hit in the screenplay are just the same problems I'm hitting in the novel and so <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I'm, I'm able I'm going to be able to solve them at this oh, point don't you hate that but yeah but and also I'm not it's not exactly the ideal follow-up to Russia, I have to say. So, mm. so that's a bit of a concern too, but it's the only kind of thing I've got going at the moment I might have to rethink. Oh, well, you know, you've got a fair <laughs> bit on your plate, so you can, <laughs>
0: you'll have time to, you know, put it in the back of your mind and cogitate a little bit. Yes, All
2: right, so just right.
0: to finish up, um, I'm going to ask yeah. you our famous three top tips for writers question. So if you had to give yep. three top tips for aspiring writers, what would they be? Well,
2: I the one bit of advice that I well, the first thing is that I, my mantra is work is play, and so I I tend to try and approach my work in as playful a manner as I possibly can to make it an enjoyable and inventive thing to hmm. to engage in. And if it gets if it gets a bit leaden, then I I know that's because I've stopped being playful in my approach, I think. Mm. The other tip is, which is a good one, which I've stolen from another writer, is write as if the reader is a friend, oh, which yeah? I think is a nice piece of advice. Mm. So um, it works particularly with Russia, I think, because it's a it has a kind of chatty style. Mm. But I suppose it means write as if your ideal reader is reading it, you know, I I feel a little bit, you know Um, write for yourself really, in a way I think is probably good advice, I would just like to entertain yourself, and the last thing, I'm sort of realising more and more in all my work, from across the board, from directing through to writing is the importance of your energy and that the energy you manifest is really what people respond to almost above anything else I think and so you kind of have to cultivate It's very it's very obscure kind of thing. No it's actually
0: no uh, the thing I'm liking about these is that that they're three quite original tips we haven't I haven't really heard them and the energy (laughs) I think the energy one is actually a really
2: really Mm. good one. Mm. Because I remember reading someone saying of Dickens that he has just an incredible energy on the page and he does you know it just leaps off his personal energy leaps off the page, and you know it's i just think you it's something you can cultivate a little bit if you if you if you it's a hard thing because it's you know it's a difficult thing to pin down, mm. but I think I know like even working with actors sometimes it's it's the almost the energy they have on screen mm. That beyond even, you know, their ability or whatever, but it's the energy that makes them, makes you look at them, mm. you know, that draws you to them. And so it's a, it's a, it's a skewer thing, you know, to, to, to knock down, so lock down. Mm. But um, I think, I think there is something about the energy of, of on the page to mm. the way it, the way something will leap off the page that, that is something that you can try, it's worth trying to cultivate, I think. Fantastic, definitely worth thinking yeah. about, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, well, all right, Shirley. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's been it's so interesting. Been I could sit and chat to you it's for huge, at least
2: thank another you. half hour and likewise. <laughs> um, great talk to you. It's great to sort of talk to, to another writer and to have such great questions. So thank, thank, you thank you so you for much. Having me
0: on. All right, well, I will put the link to your website on uh, in our show notes at shirleybarrett.com so people can have a look at your at your, uh, the film work you've done and other things. And okay. um, we, uh, yes, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure. Thanks a lot,
2: Alison.
1: Great interview with Shirley. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Look, honestly, we had such a great chat. Like, as I said to her at the
0: end, I could have just, we could have, I could have gone on all day and then mm. our readers would have been desperately very sick of the sound of my voice. But Listeners, um, even. It was, yeah, she's a really interesting person. Yes, oh, really, yes. <laughs> yes, Alison, you are podcasting, not working. <laughs> what were we saying and about people with podcasting issues? That would be me. <laughs> All right. I um, think that,
1: uh, that was particularly interesting because ever since you told me about your big news, which I'm very mm-hmm. excited by, I've been dipping in and out of my little collection of screenwriting books because, you know, I've, I've got lots and lots mm-hmm. and lots of writing books, but I've got a little section on screenwriting. And it's just such a it, – it, it is a – other another way of thinking the telling the stories is still the same but the way you tell the stories is very very different isn't it, mm. and, it's, it it's, is. and it's a whole other world
0: it is and it was interesting to hear Shirley talk about that and the other thing that really fascinated me by that conversation was the fact that she she actually feels that whatever she writes in the future will probably be novels not films wow like she'll continue directing and things but she loves the process of writing novels so much that you know in that layering and that additional detail and things like that um and the and the fact that she gets to have so much control because of course filmmaking is so collaborative it's, mm. it's a it's a very much everybody gets their bit in there um she she is is going to focus on novels for the time being, which i f- I found that I was really quite surprised by that but but I uh, found it very
1: interesting yeah, absolutely anyway, anyway, let us move on to uh, an interesting email we got uh, from Tam. Tamika Bell, and I have to say thank you to, to Tamika because Tamika listened to our little rant recently about how we weren't fond of the way of using Google Docs when it comes to editing. I'm a big fan of Google Docs. Don't get me wrong, but when it comes to editing, neither of us you know, are in love with Google Docs because it doesn't sort of have the same level of track changes and commenting and that sort of thing. Now, Tamika took the time, and we'll put this in the show notes, to actually give us some screenshots and a step-by-step um instructional, on how to use Google Docs so that it um, has the same functionality or similar functionality to Word's track changes. Now, I have to admit that um, Tamika is right. And the thing that had thrown me this whole time because uh, is that you know how we love track changes in Word Owl because that's an editing function. Mm. The problem is that mm. Google Docs, when you use the editing function, it doesn't do any of that. It's really crap and that's because mm. we actually need to be using the suggesting function so it's all been a case oh. of semantics really I've always been going to the editing function and thinking this is so crap this is so crap when in fact if I wanted it to do the same thing as word I needed to be using the suggesting function and when you suggest you to your writer or whoever it is that's you know you're editing the document for they can, in a similar way to Word, accept or reject the, the suggestion. So it is, in fact, very similar to track changes in Word. It's just that they use a different word, and that's what's thrown me this whole time. There you go. Oh, there you go. We'll put the link in the show notes. So thank you Good so lunch. much to Tamika. Now, just a little shout-out um, uh, to uh, – oh, my goodness, I didn't put – name in I'm so sorry um, but a listener has sent us the word unctuous because she was at work and she was talking about the fact that uh, her boss was having a cup of coffee and and described it as uh, he said its flavor is rather unctuous it's actually Allison. Her name is Alison and Alison said, because she moved to the UK, said uh, that after purchasing coffee, he said, its flavor is rather unctuous, isn't it? And, you know, she wasn't quite sure what that meant and she furtively looked up unctuous in the online dictionary. (laughs) And I have to say, if somebody described a cup of coffee as unctuous, I don't know whether I would have been clear on what he or she might have meant. Do you know what unctuous is? Well,
0: I I know… I know that it, like you, uh, people sometimes will describe a casserole as unctuous if it's, you know, that little bit too greasy or yes, that little bit too, right. you know, that sort of thing. I remember I had some friends over. <laughs> I've got this friend who's a very plain speaking man <laughs> and um, I had them over for lunch. It was years ago and I made, um, oh, what did I make? You know, one of those French casserole style things. Oh, ah, yes. And um he had his his bit, and his wife is just an amazingly good cook. <laughs> and I was about like twenty five, and he um, he he kind of had his first mouthful, and he went, "It's a bit unctuous, don't you find?" And I was thinking, I I was a little bit the same as Alison. I was sitting there thinking, "Is that good or bad?" <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite sure, but it hadn't thickened as much as I'd hoped it would. So I assumed it wasn't quite right. Um, but yeah, it, it generally to me implies, you know, a bit too much grease or something. Yes. So to me, if someone said the coffee was unctuous, I wouldn't be thinking that was a, necessarily a good thing.
1: No. Myself. And how can coffee be unctuous is the weird thing. Well, you
0: know, sometimes you do get coffees that are, they're like a bit, I don't know, sort of like if the beans are, they can be a little bit oily somehow. I don't know if this way, maybe too much. Too much oil in the beans. I don't know, but there can there can be that little bit of a layer. I don't know. And and there's also that bulletproof. Strange. It's a strange word to use with regards to
1: coffee. It is a strange word to use. But you know, sometimes people actually misunderstand the meaning of some words. I had a graphic designer Uh, friend, (laughs) yeah, who whose so she was a graphic designer and she had a client. You know, she presented some images that she had designed to the client and the client came back with, oh, I'm not really Mm. enamored with them. So it wasn't their shit or I hate them or whatever. She just said, I'm not really enamored with them. And she, my graphic designer friend, took such offense at this. She thought it was possibly the worst thing you could possibly say that she just sacked her as a client. Oh, seriously? That, you know, I have to say that
0: that reminds me of the movie The Princess Bride. And there's a great quote from that. Anígo Montoya says regularly, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And it's the kind of quote that I often think of in my head when I hear somebody misuse a word.
1: Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs>
0: See, it all comes back to the Princess Bride. Like, really. uh, Of course. You're it's one of those. Life. I am one of those. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I oh, I know people like
0: you. I know. I've, and I'm I've turning my boys into, into them as well. Oh, There's like a my whole goodness. tribe of this out there. It's
1: yes. a genetic thing. I've mm. I've met several people like you. I am not one of those. Really, I know I'm not. Anyway, we—that's a that's conversation a, for another day. For a whole another day. Okay. Just want to remind everyone that uh, you can sign up to the newsletter of the Australian Writer Centre at slash news But we want to give a big shout out to Jessie. L- to Jesse Lukies, who has left us a lovely review on iTunes. Thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. Yes, very nice. And Jesse has said, as an aspiring writer, I'm fascinated by the gems uncovered by Valerie and Alison each week. Although they are straight shooters, which is like quite kind of nice. Although (laughs) they are straight shooters, they are both warm and generous with their combined knowledge and energy. I admit that I get a little excited when I realize I've missed a few episodes and I can go to my happy place and have a delicious binge. Thank you. So, well, no, there thank you, go. you, Jessie. That's very kind. Yes, very kind. Uh, but if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because that really helps us in the rankings. And we'd love to bring the podcast to as many people as possible. But in the meantime, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, well, this week I am going to be in Sydney. I have
0: got many, many days of school talks and culminating in two days um with the Sydney Writers Festival author road show. So I'll be out um at two different libraries at the in the west yes. uh, doing workshops and author talks and things to um to kids out there. So, it's pretty exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I think I'm going to be very, very tired by the
1: time I catch the train home on Friday. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to having lunch with you while you're in Sydney. So, that's pretty exciting. And uh, that's probably going to be the highlight of my week because I (laughs) suspect… I've always wanted to be somebody's highlight, Val. Oh, yes. You're definitely my highlight because (laughs) the rest of the time, I've got to do really exciting things like my laundry because I've been away and traveling for a week so uh i've got just you know time to catch up on all these things but uh until then where can people find you online uh you'll find me at alisontait.com. you will find me on twitter at
0: at al tate and you will find me on facebook at alison tate writer and i'm in other places as well but those are probably my main three hangouts
1: yes and check out and the you- pink fibro book club also on facebook yes Yes, because this month we are reading Charlotte Woods'
0: um, *The Natural*. What's it called again? I've completely forgotten. *Natural Way of Things*. and the, the Facebook group is going off already with, with various discussions about that. So mm. yeah, join us. It's a, it's a great club and we've got 700 and something members now. Wow. So it's a, there's always someone there to talk books with, which is always fun. Fantastic.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, you'll find me online at, uh, at Valerie Koo on Instagram and Twitter and just search for me on Facebook. There aren't too many Valerie Koo's out there. <laughs> so you'll find me. It's all right. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. Do connect with us on social media and, and uh, until next week, we will talk to you then. Bye. This week's giveaway is China Rich Girlfriend by Kevin Kwan. This is a hilarious romp into the world of the super rich in Asia and is the sequel to his internationally best-selling debut novel, Crazy Rich Asians. Entries close Monday, 23 November 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there will be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentre.com.au slash podcast.